we had more folks put in to make this possible uh, this time than any time previously. So very quickly, our presenting sponsor, Walmart, our partners at South by Southwest and the University of Texas at Austin. And I'm going to run through this list like the end of a prescription drug commercial very quickly. So here we go. AARP, the Annette Strauss Institute for Civic Life, the Association of Texas Professional Educators, AT&T, the AT&T Executive and Conference Center, Beer Alliance of Texas, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Texas, the Boeing Company, Centerpoint Energy, Comcast, CPS Energy, Deloitte, Doctors Hospital at Renaissance, Educate Texas, Emrys, ETS, ETS, Highset, General Motors, Google, Greater Texas Water, Gulf States Toyota, Gulf State Community Colleges Consortium, HEB, Hatton W. Sumner's Foundation, Hill & Knowlton Strategies, Houston First, Houston Tillerson University, IBC Bank, J.P. Morgan Chase, LBJ School of Public Affairs, Legacy Community Health, Lockheed Martin, Lumina Foundation, Meadows Center for Water and the Environment, Meadows Foundation, Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute for Texas, Meadows School of Journalism at Northwestern University, Messina Hoff Winery and Resort, Methodist Healthcare Ministries of South Texas, Cynthia and George Mitchell Foundation, Monument Group, National Instruments, NRG Energy, Encore, Pearson, Quest Diagnostics, Raise Your Hand, Texas, Southwest Airlines, the St. David's Foundation and St. David's Healthcare, Teladoc, Texas A&M University System, Texas Association of Realtors, Texas Central, the Texas X's, Tex Protects, the Nature Conservancy, Toyota, North America, Uber, United Healthcare, UT Press, Upbring, UT Southwestern Medical Center, Valero, the Walton Family Foundation, and We Work for Texas. Give them all a big hand. Those folks make it possible for us to be here. We will do the usual drill questions from the stage following our conversation. And again, thank you so much for being part of this event. Now it is my pleasure to introduce the closing session of the 2016 Texas Tribune Festival, the second of our two Sunday keynotes. In this 2016 obsessed year at this 2016 obsessed festival, it is appropriate that our final conversation is with a candidate for president of the United States. He's not a conventional candidate, but what about this campaign has been conventional? Besides, not being conventional isn't the same as not being serious. And the opposite is equally true. Evan McMullen is running for president as an independent, no small feat in this country historically or now. He said on Twitter this week that he's currently on the ballot and, or registered as a write-in in 31, 31 states, and expects to be on in 40 to 45 states by election day. I can confirm, as we have reported, that he is a certified write-in in Texas. Mr. McMullen is polling in the single digits in every state where he's been included in surveys, nearly everywhere in the very low single digits. And so he is not invited to participate in tomorrow night's first debate and almost certainly won't make the others. It is true that in certain states, he and his campaign have poll-related talking points. He's within the margin of error of Libertarian Party nominee Gary Johnson in Utah, and he's beating Green Party nominee Jill Stein in Virginia. Still, here in the reality-based universe, it's safe to say, no disrespect to him or his supporters, that his chances he'll be moving into the White House in January are next to nil. So why is he running? This is something we'll talk about, but the top-line answer is that he believes the binary choice presented to us leaves a lot to be desired. In a year 
Where Americans have lost faith in candidates of both major parties, it's time for a generation of new leadership to step up, he said when he declared his candidacy on August 8th. America deserves much better than either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton can offer us. David Evan McMullen was born in Provo, Utah in 1976. Do the math, he's 40, or nearly 30 years younger than the Democratic and Republican nominees. He wasn't kidding about that generation of new leadership stuff. After earning an undergraduate degree from Brigham Young University and an MBA from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, he served as a Mormon missionary in Brazil, as a volunteer refugee resettlement officer in Jordan. He was a trainee at CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia, when all hell broke loose on 9-11. After completing his training, he repeatedly volunteered to be part of counterterrorism and intelligence operations overseas in places like the Middle East, North Africa, and South Asia. Ten years later, he exited the CIA and joined the investment banking division of Goldman Sachs in the Bay Area. In 2013, he returned to Washington and joined the House Committee on Foreign Affairs as a senior advisor later becoming the chief policy director of the House Republican Conference. We are so pleased to have him in Austin this weekend to talk about his campaign and the issues at play in this race and going forward. Please join me in welcoming the keynote closer for the 2016 Texas Tribune Festival, Evan McMullen. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Evan. Great to see you. Good, please. Come on. So happy to have you here. Happy to be here. Thank you very much. Th thank you very, very much for being here. So I do want to get at this question, just sure. so we're all clear. You don't actually think you're going to be president. <laughs> well, let me just say this, that uh, clearly the path to the presidency for an independent candidate declaring three months, declaring one's candidacy three months away from election day right. is challenging. Um, our goal is electorally to block Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump from achieving a, ma a majority in the Electoral College. If that happens, then yeah. the election would go to the House of Representatives, every state would get a, a vote, and we'd have a new chance. This is a three-carom bank shot, you acknowledge. I mean, you're really trying to figure well, out... Well, let's, let's talk more specifically about it. So yeah. how, how would that happen? That would happen if the race were very close between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, not in the popular vote, but in the Electoral College. Right. If it were very, very close, then one or two states could decide the election. And if that's the case, the voters in those states will have the opportunity to give it to one of them, or perhaps to take it to the House with me. That's my proposal. Yeah. But we have other goals that are not just electoral. Um, as you mentioned in, in your introduction of me, I, I firmly believe that it is time in this country for a new generation of leadership. I really believe that, and I think the numbers reflect that reality. 70 to 80% of Americans believe the country's on the wrong track. 42% of Americans say they're independents, they're not affiliated with either political party. So new generation, Mr. McMullen, does yeah. not necessarily mean a young person. Uh, no, I don't think it necessarily does. I think it means people who come from outside of government now, not career politicians. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, so we're standing in this election, I and my team and those who are supporting our efforts, we're standing for what we believe are timeless principles that our country was founded upon. The idea of equality, the idea of liberty, the right to life, liberty in the pursuit of happiness. These things that are, I don't believe 
being well represented by either major party candidate or by the other third party candidates. I want to understand, uh, we'll come to the question of this uh, uh, three-carom bank shot as I refer to it and, and ballot access and sure. the difficulty that independent candidates, not just you, but all independent candidates have in actually being a, a part of this conversation. Sure. I want to understand though why you're running, why you're running, why you're the one to carry this mantle. Uh, who, who recruited you? Who's financing you? How, give, give us the story of how you got into this race. I, I think people are not to. clear on that. Yes, absolutely. Happy yeah. to. So I consider myself one of millions of, of Americans who watched this elect, election cycle uh, go forward this year and were disappointed by what they saw develop. On the Democrat side, uh, I would propose that, that there wasn't a, 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 an especially fair process. On the Republican side, you saw a fragmented Republican electorate uh, uh, basically allow a way forward for Donald Trump, and then you see uh, others joining his cause, and we can get into that. But bot the bottom line is, uh, I believe that the result of both of those nomination processes have left us with two major party candidates who are unfit for the responsibilities they see. You, you believe you're prepared to say, Ted Cruz yesterday when he was here was not prepared to say Donald Trump is not fit to be president. You've oh, already said it. I, I look, you believe him not to be fit. I think it just goes without saying, but absolutely for so many reasons, maybe we'll talk about them. Yeah. You I think, think it's he clear. Is not fit. <laughs> Thank you. Are you, uh, are you prepared to say that Hillary Clinton is not fit to be president? The argument against Hillary Clinton has been Yes, she's competent, and, yet she's, and yes, she's qualified. I just think she's the wrong choice. You're willing to go a step further and say she's not fit. Look, I, I believe she's a deeply corrupt politician. I, I believe Donald Trump on, is... On what basis do you say Hillary Clinton's a deeply corrupt politician? Well, again, where to start, but I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. The yeah. idea that she would set up a private email server uh, and put... Uh, America's most sensitive secrets at risk in order to avoid accountability to the American people, I think is, is very problematic. At the same time, she was holding meetings to apparently assist her fundraise, the fundraising of her private foundation. This is, look, we're, we're living You're in susceptible to that, to that uh, that's largely a Trump campaign trope that the Clinton email server and I the Clinton foundation uh, pieces of this are connected. Well, I don't, I don't care what Donald Trump says, but that, the reality is that that's corruption, and I don't think we should tolerate that. Now, Donald Trump's uh, got his own problems, and I believe he's a true threat to the country. Um, but I am saying that both of these two major party candidates are, are, not, are, are, are not fit for, for the responsibilities they seek. So I watched this proceed after the two, uh, the two conventions took place. I hoped that somehow somebody would stand up right. and run, uh, and run a, a campaign, an independent campaign, to block them both. I had hoped that it would be somebody with national name ID, somebody who already had an infrastructure in place. I reached out to those who I knew had been working on uh, identifying someone, someone like that, and I was disappointed to learn that they had not succeeded in finding somebody who was willing to, to run in that capacity. And they very publicly were trying. They were almost oh, putting an ad on Indeed.com or yeah. on, you know, you know please, uh, come, come run, and they could not get a, a bunch of people they had approached to do There's it. No, yeah, they were open about it. There's no reason not to be transparent right. about it. And, and, and they couldn't get anyone to do it. So I reached out to them thinking for sure they'd have somebody, yeah. hoping that I could assist that effort. Uh, when I learned that they didn't have anybody at that last minute, at that late stage, yeah. they asked me to consider it, and I did. And I spent the next 10 days doing just that. It was probably the hardest 10 days of my life. Right. And ultimately I decided that someone needed to do this for a variety of reasons, right. some of which I mentioned earlier. 
and that if no one else would do it, then I should. You've never run for office before. I never have. I'm not a career politician. Well, not only are you not a career politician, you're not a politician. I'm, well, I am now, aren't right. I? I'm yeah, running for right. president. Right, but, but, you've, but you've, never, you've yeah. never run previously. I have not run previously. So what made you think you were up to this? I mean, I don't want to assume, Mr. and I have no disrespect there. I don't, no, I, no. I don't, I don't want to assume that you're not up to it. Mm -hmm. But what, what made you assume that this was something that you would be able to do and want to do? Well, I would question the premise of that question in the first place. The okay. idea that you have to have run for office or you need to be a career politician. Well, everybody starts someplace. I mean, that's, well, you have sure, to run first. Sure you do, but I think we've got to get out of that. If we're, if we're going to depend on our current politicians and our, our career politicians and current politicians or politicians who have served before, we're going mean, to, we're left with what I think is not a great pool of potential candidates. Right. I firmly believe that we as, as citizens, I believe we need a new era, not only of American leadership, but a new era of civic engagement in which we as Americans actively, proactively go find candidates uh, who are wise, who are honest, who are dedicated to the fundamental principles of our country, equality yep. and liberty. We need to find them and we need to support them and vote for them and push them forward to be our leaders. What's working, what, what we're doing now is not working. Yep. We must take more ownership in this process as Americans. And that's part of what I'm doing as a candidate here. So let me just go back to this question though. Why me? Well, yep. as I said, it would have been a lot easier <laughs> to run a three-month presidential campaign had I been somebody who'd run for president before with an infrastructure in place. Right. That's not me. They didn't step forward, so I did. But I do believe that I am qualified to help this country meet some of its major challenges, our national security challenges. I believe I'm the only candidate in this race who has national security credibility, including Secretary Clinton. Although, yes, she presided over our foreign policy for a time, and perhaps we can talk about that. We will. Yeah. So, uh, so there's that. Uh, there's also government reform. I'm the only candidate in this race, uh, or certainly between the two major candidates, um, but I think in general, who understands exactly what kinds of reforms this government needs in order to be accountable to the American people again. And I spent time in Congress working on those very issues. Right. And then the third thing is that I believe that I'm the best candidate to get this country's economy up and running again. Uh, the other two candidates, uh, I believe, promote policies that would lead to further stagnation for our economy. And so, so I believe that I am prepared, and uh, it's not a one-man show. It's, you, know, you, you work with the help of, of uh, your, your cabinet and advi outside advisors and all that, but I believe that I am prepared to lead this country. The, uh, the campaign infrastructure you have, as you say, it's a three-month campaign. It's relatively sparse or spare campaign, right? It's a, smaller, it's a smaller campaign than the big campaigns, obviously. Well, it's certainly not a, a Hillary Clinton-sized campaign. We right. are nimble, but we, are, we are, have a tremendous team, yep. and we are augmented by tens of thousands of volunteers, volunteers who are extremely engaged. In just five, under six weeks now, we're pushing six weeks, we have started something that is incredible, who, something that political operatives say right. is unheard of. How much have you raised, Mr. McMullen? Uh, well, we, in the first three weeks, we raised uh, 325 to 50,000, I forget what it was yep. in total. Yep. Um, and that came from, not from major donors. We, didn't, we don't have the support of major Republican donors for the most part. There are some. Uh, this came, this money and the money that continues to come from us comes from regular Americans like me who are not wealthy but who have chipped in 50, 20, $250 uh, some of them have made the written larger checks, but yeah. our average donation 
uh, is about 38 to 40 dollars, which is more than Bernie Sanders. So, so the, the point here is that as a new candidate, as a fresh face on the political scene, um, I've got to build our list, uh, our, our list of donors and list of people who we email for donations. And we're doing that. We started from literally zero and we're building. Uh, and that just takes time. But in four weeks, our list was a third the size of Marco Rubio's. And Marco Rubio has had quite some, he's a man I respect, has had quite some time yep. to develop his. So th this, is, this is happening very quickly and we're very Will encouraged. you be able to put any campaign ads on? I, we'll be doing digital ads. We've done uh, a few, not many, uh, but we're getting so much traction in, in earned media and in earned, earned digital media that, uh, that we're able to advance our, our message that way. Right. Let me ask you, let's talk, you said maybe we'll have an opportunity to talk about qualifications of the other candidates. You know, I look at your Twitter feed, I look at the material that your press team puts out, and you seem much more significantly concerned about Donald Trump than Hillary Clinton. It does not seem to me that you're running because you're dissatisfied with both of them. It really seems like you're dissatisfied with Donald Trump. Is that a misperception? Well, well certainly. We are, we are opposed. I am opposed to Hillary Clinton's candidacy, and I'm opposed to that of Donald Trump as well. But right. I, I, am a, I am a conservative. You're not just the emblem of the Never Trump movement, basically. The Never Trump movement come to life. Well, I, I am opposed to Trump, and I am sympathetic to the Never Trump movement, and, and my supporters come from that movement. But to describe that movement as only Never Trump is to miss the point. People are opposed to, those of us who are so strongly opposed to Trump are opposed to him because we don't think that he is uh, he is capable uh, of defeating Hillary Clinton. Okay, now yes, it is close, and who knows, anything can happen, as many have pointed out. Pointed out, but any credible candidate, I think, right now, would be on, from the Republican side, would be defeating Hillary Clinton uh, by some margin. So this is a pragmatic decision on your not, part. No, it's it's not. It's not. I'm sorry, Evan. No, no, it's it's, okay. it's not just pragmatic. It's it's about ideals. It's about the fundamental ideas yep. that this country was founded upon, which are universal and timeless, and existed even right. before this country was founded. Flesh out this concept of Donald Trump being unfit. What is it about him that you find lacking or wanting? Well, just about everything, candidly. But uh, you know, if we can start with his lack of policy knowledge, so we'll just start there and we'll put that aside. He doesn't know anything and doesn't want to learn anything. Uh, thank you. Uh, but my bigger concerns are the following two things. Number one is that I believe Donald Trump is a racist, and we need to come out and say that cleanly. Mm -hmm. I see it's a you, tough you, let, let, me, let me stop you. you, yeah. you because some people have been unwilling to walk that far down the path. I know. People will say yeah. he uh, uh, maybe gives voice to people who are racists. Maybe he has supporters who are racists. Basket of deplorables, right? Yeah. You're going to go out. You're going to just full, full bore say Donald Trump is a racist. Well, he himself has said racist things. So regardless of who he's being supported by, which yeah. is another important thing here, uh, he himself has made racist comments. Uh, he enjoys the support of a white supremacist movement in the United States, which he refuses to repudiate. Donald Trump is a racist. Trump is a racist brand. We need to call a spade a spade, and any American leader needs to stand up for equality in this country. Okay. So, so he's not intellectually curious, doesn't know anything, doesn't want to learn. He's a racist. 
are, are specific policies of his policies that you disagree with. Do you agree there should be a religious test, yes or no? Absolutely not. Do you believe we should build a wall between the Texas and Mexico, uh, between Texas and Mexico? I think we need to secure our border. Experts say, if, if Donald Trump took the time to listen to them or cared, experts say that in some place, cases you need a wall, in other places you need a double wall, and in other places a wall won't help and you need electronic means. We need to secure a border with Mexico, that's fine. But for example, I don't support deporting 11 million people. That was my next question. Enormous right. damage to our economy and rip apart families. But let's enforce our laws and let's secure a border so we don't get put in the situation before. But let's not suggest that everyone who comes here from Mexico is a rapist. And let's, let's not do that. And I, look, our leaders must be committed. Thank you. Our leaders must be committed to equality in this country. If you're not committed to equality, then you cannot be committed to liberty. Equality is, is a fundamental principle. Our leaders must commit to that. And, and one of the problems I have with Donald Trump, I'm getting very serious and agitated here, um, but I, I tend to, and that's why I'm in this race. Yeah. Uh, one, of the, one of the most disappointing things in this election cycle is that as Donald Trump has, uh, has embraced the support of the white supremacist movement, and made racist comments himself, the Republican Party has not stood up to repudiate, if not Donald Trump himself, but his racist comments and the support he rece receives from the racist movement, or from the white supremacist movement. And because of that, I question, I question the Republican Party as a viable, uh, as, a, as a politically viable vehicle for the conservative movement, for true conservatives like me, and I question whether it, it can be a viable vehicle for American leadership. If you, at the, at, at the most basic level, cannot commit yourself to equality, how are you fit to lead a country that was founded on that idea, although imperfectly? How can you lead in this country? And I'll go further to say the, second thing, the, the third thing uh, that I'll mention about Donald Trump that I have an issue with is his lack of commitment to the cause of liberty which Benjamin Franklin called the cause of all mankind. Well, but, uh, go, go farther on I that, will, please. I yeah. will, I uh, will. So, so this is the point about that. Again, a fundamental principle. Donald Trump is out there advocating for a national stop and frisk policy. That's a fundamental violation of the Constitution. And in this context, it is as well racist. And that is what Donald Trump proposes. Donald Trump admires authoritarians and dictators who violate the civil rights, the human rights of people around the world. Donald Trump embraces, a, as I said, a white supremacist movement that not two weeks ago held a press conference. They left their caves, came out and held a press conference in Washington, D.C., downtown. And they said, we don't, we don't support this idea of liberty. Okay, well, we, or, or of, of equality. Well, equality. We, we got that. We knew that. Then they went on to say, no, by the way, this idea of liberty, yeah, we're not, we don't support that either. And for every patriotic American, I don't care whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, if you're right or left or in the middle or none of the above, every patriotic, uh, patriotic, patriotic American ought to hear that and, and I would think uh, feel shivers down their spine that we have a candidate who's willing to uh, encourage the support of a movement that doesn't embrace uh, either of those two causes, the cause of equality yeah. and the cause of liberty. You, you, you self-identify as a Republican? You know, actually, and this is a misconception, I am, I'm an American first. I was raised by my, my family, 
raised by the CIA to consider myself American first, okay? Then, I, then I'm a conservative, and after that I think about party. I've been a registered independent for as long as I can well, remember. Well, that's really the question I'm asking. So you don't identify or register with one party or another? I have not in as long as I can remember. Right. I mean, years and years and years. I've only voted Republican through life. I've never voted for anyone who isn't Republican. Right. And I was the chief policy director, as you obviously, pointed out. For the obviously, obviously, so Republican I've, Look, I've, I've been, I've been, I have for some time felt the, the Republican Party was the best political vehicle for the conservative movement and for leadership in America. I do not believe that now. You believe Donald Trump's a Republican? Uh, well, I mean, it doesn't take much to check a box. So factually, I think he is, just like Barack Obama but was born you, in the But United as you know, States. Mr. McMullen, there are a lot of people who look at Donald Trump as a Republican nominee, and they go, first problem, he's not a Republican. Well, he's not a conservative. Let's clarify. So there's the Republican Party. As a matter of fact, I, I be But I think there are people who even say, this guy's not even a Republican. He doesn't even actually, I mean, he may say he's a member of our party. He may have run for our party's nomination, but there's nothing about this he guy may, that you could identify with that party ID. Uh, he, he checked the box Republican. Right. He ran as Republican. He received the Republican nomination. To me, seems seems like he's a seems Republican. Seems pretty Republican, but he's not a conservative. But he is not a conservative, yeah. absolutely not. Yeah. He, is not, he is not a conservative. And I question the conservatism of also other Republicans who are supporting him. Because again, true conservative, conservatism, in my mind, yeah. embraces the cause of liberty. And I keep harping on it, but it's just so important. Well, you put out a statement earlier this week when Ted Cruz endorsed Donald Trump, you said Ted Cruz betrayed principled conservatives in doing so, right? Sadly, I believe that's true. Yeah. So anybody, including people who are late on the Trump train, who get behind this guy, you think sacrifice their own brand as principled conservatives? I think so. Yeah. What's your problem with Hillary Clinton? I, I, I think you've already alluded to, uh, to a number of problems that take off the table the possibility that if it were a binary choice, that would be the direction that you would go. Um, Make, articulate the case against her. I want to clarify that last thing. I would go in which direction? You would not. My point is that you, you're not for her under any circumstances. You're not for him under any circumstances. That's right. Make, articulate the case why, why you think she's wrong for this country. Make well, well let's, I'll, I'll just say first and foremost, look, I, I think we need a leader who, um, who believes in, in, in limited government, a leader who will return power to the states, a leader who believes the government is accountable to the people, okay? Yep. So why is this important? Because again, our founding principles, one of those was, you know, as it is in the, in the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness, in order for that to be real in our lives, it means that we have to be empowered as citizens, which means our government must be accountable to us. And for that to happen, and I believe for this country to be unified, more power needs to be at the state level. It's the 10th Amendment of the Constitution. Yep. The federal government should be limited. More power to the states. Why should more power be at the states? Why is that important? Well, it's important because when states, when power is closer to the people in the states, it's more accountable to the people, and therefore, I believe, uh, will yield better leadership. Why else is it important? Well, it's important because we're a nation of, a, of 330 million people, and we all come from different backgrounds, racial, ethnic, religious, and we just have different ideas. And we're all supposed to be empowered to pursue happiness in the way we see fit. That's a wonderful, beautiful thing, consistent with what I think are universal truths. And you think that Hillary Clinton's campaign and her political philosophy are at odds with what you've just described? I do, because if you're, what I'm saying is that if the states are more empowered and the people of Vermont want a, a socialized healthcare system, then let them have it. 
let them have their single-payer healthcare system. Yep. And if people in Utah, where I was born, if they'd rather have another solution, perhaps a market-driven solution, uh, then let them have it. But let's embrace the cause, again, the cause of liberty in this regard. Let's put power closer to the people. Let's accept that we all have different ideas and different states are going to do different things. And we're united in, in respect for each other's liberty. Who are the potential McMullen voters? I've been thinking a lot about the electorate. You know, this is an election. As I said to Senator Cruz yesterday, he posed this as a binary choice. He made the argument to me that one of the reasons he was supporting Donald Trump after some angst and, and, and reflection was because he did not want Hillary Clinton to be president. And he said, basically, if I don't want Hillary Clinton to be president, my only choice is uh, Donald Trump. And I said, it's not a binary choice. There are actually five candidates running. Yeah, I know you did that, and I, you, you were, thank you, I, I, well, you were good look, to do that. Mm, mm. I, Evans, know, you, Evans do each other favors, this in is case it's all, yes. anyone's wondering. All, all about the Evans, right. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, there's Gary Johnson, there's Jill Stein, and, and there's Evan uh, McMullen. I'm trying to understand who the McMullen voters are out of that choice of five. Are they people who are first-time voters, not voted before? Are they young people? Are they principally never Trump, never Hillary types, the percentage of, of the country dissatisfied with their party's nominee but would never vote for the other? Are they the people who believe the system is rigged? Are they bald voters? I mean, you know, what? Who, who, yes. who, is, who is on, theoretically, Team McMullen? Can you characterize the kind of person who might ultimately be a supporter of your campaign? Yeah, well, first of all, if I don't have the bald vote, then something's wrong then in America. Then you're dead. Yeah, right, then I'm yeah. gone. Okay. Um, I think I'll have the bald vote. Um, who are the uh, Evan McMullen voters? Well, uh, we have found in these early weeks that they tend to be 45 years and younger or 60 years old and older. So I don't know quite what to make what of that. What exactly is that about, right? I don't know what, the, what, what that's all about, but yeah. I suppose we'll learn over time. Uh, they also are people who are deeply opposed to Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. These are people who are extremely principled. These are people who, uh, who are, are, uh, believe in the Constitution. Many of them believe that the, Consti the Constitution was an inspired document. They, they, they take what the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence say about, about equality and liberty. They take that seriously. And, uh, and they're people who understand the truth about Donald Trump, which is that he is not a conservative. He is, he is more like Hillary Clinton than he is a, a conservative. And he's advocated for Hillary Clinton-like policies his entire yeah. life until he decided to run for president as a Republican. So either way, they believe, many believe, that they're going to get the same sort of thing, a big centralized government, unaccountable to the American people with a lot of corruption. And these are people who presumably, as the phrase has come into vogue, are country before party. These are country, That's right. country first people. Eric Erickson, the, the conservative writer, blogger, radio host, who was actually here this weekend, endorsed you earlier this week on his uh, 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 website, The Resurgent. And I thought one of the things he pointed out was that among the reasons to support Evan McMullen is he will get people to turn out and to vote for other people who do have conservative principles further down the ballot. One anxiety that uh, people who want to see the Senate in Republican hands or want to see people on state ballots across the country remain in the hands of seats, remain in the hands of conservatives, is that they may be so depressed, despondent over the presidential race that they may just not show up to vote. And his point is that the voter turnout trick here may be get Evan McMullen 
in front of all these people. They'll come out and support him. It's a place for them to park their conservative principles, and then they'll return to the regular uh, paper or plastic choice uh, on the rest of the ballot. That's okay with you. You don't mind being that vehicle. Well, I, that's, that's part of what we're doing here, yeah. certainly. People approach me and say, hey, I wasn't going to vote uh, at all, and now I am going to, and I assume that they'll, they'll, they'll tend to vote on, down the conservative line, which, which I would support. Um, but you know, I, you know what I'm, I'm, I'm more focused on is simply standing up for what's right in this election, yep. standing up for Americans of all kinds of, all different backgrounds, standing up for our freedom to pursue happiness, and standing up for what I believe will be a new generation of leadership and a new conservative movement that, is, that rededicates itself to the cause of liberty in this country and what comes with that, and I believe that is, that is uh, inclusiveness and tolerance for people of all religions yeah. and ethnic and racial backgrounds. Let's talk about qualifications. Let's talk about why you're qualified to be president. You were 10 years in the CIA. 11 years, yeah. 11, 11 years. You cannot talk about what you did I can talk about it to a greater degree than people think, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Well, you I, I'd like to know what you did. I'd like to know yeah. what you. Well, I'd, that, I'd like the, to know what you did, and I'd like to know why what you did qualifies you to manage the foreign policy and national and homeland security of this country. Sure. Well, what, I was an operations officer. I was an undercover operations officer, and what that meant is that I managed uh, clandestine operations overseas on behalf of the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, that involved working directly with our special forces uh, community in the military, uh, Navy SEALs, Delta, uh, and that involved me working with the FBI here in the United States. Uh, that involved me working with our, our allies as well, managing complicated operations against Al-Qaeda and other terrorist groups yeah. and, other, and countries that, who are adversaries of, of freedom, as I say. So that's what I did. I, I in briefed. I worked, you know, directly with cabinet, cabinet level officials, briefing them and with the president at the time. Uh, and I, I, which which president did president you? President Bush. President Bush. Okay. So uh, these were some of our country's most sensitive operations. Uh, these were some of our country's biggest challenges, uh, and and these were my responsibilities at a young age. In fact, right. And, and I learned a lot, a great deal from those experiences. I wasn't in Washington uh, theorizing about foreign policy or national security. You were actually in the middle of it. I was living it, doing it. I know the players, and, and I, I, no other candidate in this election has that credibility. Do you have any management experience, any executive experience? Leaving aside, again, this question of I've been a career politician or I've run for office before. Do you have any experience running anything? I do have. I mean, I'm running the campaign now. I, uh, do you have I, any experience before the campaign? I, I manage the, the, the House Republicans policy team um, I, in the agency. I, I, I managed a, a suite of, right. of, of operations and people who, who worked in them under my direction. But you, but you understand, Mr. McMullen, that one of the issues in this campaign, in addition to fitness to serve, is qualifications to serve. Sure. And if Donald Trump, who runs a major company is perceived to be insufficiently qualified to run the country because he doesn't have adequate experience. You can understand how some might look at you and say, well-intentioned, smart guy, stepping up on behalf of the country, public-spirited, but running the investment banking division at, at, of Goldman Sachs in the Bay Area or running the House Policy Conference Committee, whatever that is, that's, you're talking about running the country. <laughs> sure. So how is that transferable? Yeah, okay, so... Uh... 
look, would it be ideal if in addition to all of the other things I've done that I had already run a country before or a company, a large company? Sure, that would be ideal. But you know what? I've, been, I've spent my life doing things that none of the other candidates have done that give me knowledge about key challenges. Real world experience. Real world experience that none of them have. And sure, would it be, would it be great if I had run General Electric before, before this? It would be. Certainly it would be. Um, but it would also be great if Donald Trump didn't have such careless ideas about how we use, about our nuclear policy, about our alliances, yep. about racial relations in the United States, uh, about our basic freedoms. Uh, it would be great if he also didn't have a total lack of knowledge of the Constitution. I remember when I was in the House, he met with us, and he talked about his support for an article of, of the Constitution that doesn't exist. So, you know, I'll, I'll trade my knowledge of the founding principles, the timeless universal principles of this country, its national security needs, the needs for its reform, right. and for the needs of this economy over Donald Trump's management of his uh, branding business, hotel branding and construction business, any day of the week. Let's talk about specific, specific foreign policy things that will come up, that have come up. Sure. Uh, uh, during, during this campaign. What should we be doing differently uh, uh, as it relates to ISIS in the Middle East mm -hmm. than we're doing now or than either of the candidates uh, running as major party nominees are proposing? What's different? Well, first of all, we, on ISIS, we need a comprehensive strategy to defeat ISIS. Now, I start there because right now we just don't have that. And what we do have from the administration about around defeating ISIS is a strategy that our allies in the region, who we need to be successful, don't fully buy into. And because they don't fully buy into that strategy, they don't fully engage in that strategy. And so that's what we need. We need a leader who understands what needs to happen in order to defeat ISIS, and who will put together a strategy that reflects that knowledge, and that will therefore achieve buy-in from our key allies. Can you tell us what your forward. strategy would be? I sure can. I can talk about some of its key elements. Uh, one thing that's lacking right now is a lack of recognition in this administration that Bashar al-Assad, who is a brutal dictator in Syria, who has uh, embarked on an industrial-scale slaughter of Syrian civilians over the last five-plus years, he must not be allowed to continue to attack civilians, and ultimately he must uh, be put in a situation where we can negotiate his departure. And if we don't do that, he will continue to create an environment in Syria and in the broader region, in which ISIS thrives. Dictators create terrorists. They do it in the long term, or they do it in the short term, but they do it all the same. And Bashar al-Assad is the worst among them in the region now. So, so that's what we need to do. How do we do that? Well, we need to change the dynamic on the battlefield. Right now, Bashar al-Assad is supported by Iran. He's supported by the Russians and, and, and Hezbollah. And as a result of that, he has... He has power on the battlefield that leaves him feeling quite secure and therefore um, not feeling like he needs to negotiate with us as we would like him to leave with the, the rest of the world. And so we've got to change that dynamic on the battlefield. How do we do that? Well, we need to do some of the things, same things to do that that we need to do to more directly confront ISIS. What are those things? Well, we need that strategy that, again, includes Assad. That'll get our allies in the region more involved. That's their biggest gripe about the strategy now. Yep. Uh, we need to support our friendly forces on the ground more. That includes the moderate Syrian opposition, includes the Turks, includes the Kurds, and others in the region. Uh, we need to do that because if we support our friends on the ground, that lessens the need for us to have to put uh, conventional troops on the ground ourselves. And after Iraq and all the 
uh, all the, the blood and treasure that we've spent over the, over the recent years since 9-11, uh, we need to think that way about, uh, about these situations, working with our allies more. You know, we've relitigated the Iraq war for two consecutive presidential elections. Mm -hmm. um, Donald Trump insists, and there seems to be some evidence that this is not true, that he was opposed to going into Iraq before the war. Hillary Clinton obviously voted for the war and now says that she regrets that vote. Would you have gone into Iraq, Mr. McMullen? Well, first of all, let me point out that Donald Trump said he was for the war, then against the war and all that. No, right? no, yeah, we, yeah. I've said he's he been that, inconsistent yeah. in his, and possibly not told the truth about what he yeah. actually did. Right. But, yeah. but, but regardless, I mean, I'll say I served, I will say I served in Iraq. I'm proud of my service. I'm proud of the service of other CIA operatives and, uh, and of, of those many in the military who served there far away from their friends and but family. But saying whether you would have gone into Iraq as president is not the same as dishonoring or disrespecting service, right? That's exactly right. And right. my own service included. I mean, right. I, I volunteered to go to Iraq at a time when, we were, when things were really bad. This was right before the surge. Right. Uh, and I went, and, and I, you know, I had questions about our being there, but, but I saw that my country was in danger, or was, it was, was, uh, was struggling, and I thought it was the right thing to do to serve. So, so there I went. But I will say that I do think Iraq was a mistake. Um, it's easy to say that in retrospect. It's very, very easy. I remind people that at the time we made that decision, we were still afraid of the next big Al-Qaeda attack, perhaps bigger than 9-11. Yep. And, and we had intelligence that was not great, and we acted hastily, and we acted, and we made a mistake. And once we started, we had not clear goals and not a great plan right. to meet unclear goals. And so it was, it was a mistake. We, we, we will have spent, or we've spent about $2 trillion there. We lost over 4,000 American lives. Iraqis lost their lives too, civilians too, in, in, the, in, the, in the entire conflict. I think it was, it was, it was misguided, but, but I will say that uh, those who attack uh, President Bush uh, too harshly for that, I, I think, um, should, should reconsider as well. Uh, the situation the country was in was a very difficult one. We, we were, again, afraid that another big terrorist attack was coming, uh, and, and President Bush made a lot of very difficult decisions politically in order to keep us safe. And, and it, it's, he wasn't perfect, none of us are, but, but I, I respect his leadership during that period despite the imperfections. Uh, Mr. McMullen, Russia has come back, roaring back as a, an issue in this campaign in part because the Russians may seem, seem, seems like they may be trying to control this election. There's a question about them hacking, but beyond that there's a question about them just making general mischief in this election cycle. A lot of attention has been paid to Donald Trump's comments about Vladimir Putin, you've been very critical of, of, of Donald Trump on the question of, of Putin. Can you talk about your point of view about Putin and Russia? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll, I'll just remind people that my perspective on this is it comes from my service with the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, yeah. Vladimir Putin was a KGB officer. He received training about how to identify weaknesses in people and then exploit them. In Donald Trump, he sees a man who has an out-of-control ego. He sees a man with financial vulnerabilities. You think he's playing Donald Trump? I absolutely think he's playing Donald Trump. Donald Trump is too foolish to understand that, too unsophisticated to understand that. But Donald Trump makes it easy on Vladimir Putin because Donald Trump is aligned with Vladimir Putin ideologically. Donald Trump is somebody who has, um, who has applauded the, the brutal actions of the Chinese government in, in Tiananmen Square. 
He has applauded the, uh, the oppressive uh, activities of, of Saddam Hussein and also those of Vladimir Putin. He talks about Vladimir Putin being a strong leader. Well, in fact, in fact, Mr. Trump says that Vladimir Putin has been pound for pound a better leader than Barack Obama, right? A I stronger mean, leader. Stronger leader. Do you agree with that? The, this is the thing about Donald Trump that should... Whoa, whoa, whoa. That, no, do, no. do you agree with that, yes or no? Well, I'm going to answer you. Okay. I'm going to answer you All right. in this way. All right. <laughs> Um, I'm just—I'm still in not letting people off the hook mode. The weekend's almost yeah, over. Yeah, I'm yeah, sorry. yeah. Don't let me off the hook. Okay, but I'm good. not trying to get off. You, this is a great question. Okay, I'm, good. I just want to answer right. it. So, and now I forgot what the question was. Just kidding. So, you know, Donald Donald Trump says that uh, that Vladimir Putin is a strong leader, and that and that Barack Obama is a weak leader. I'm no fan of Barack Obama. Okay, I, you know, people get that. I'm a conservative. We have we disagree on ideas. Okay? Yeah. But but this is the thing. To compare uh, an authoritarian like Vladimir Putin, somebody who operates without any respect to the cause of liberty, and to say he's a strong leader compared to somebody like Barack Obama, who although we, you know, conservatives have disagreements with him over, you know, executive orders and things like that, to suggest that somebody like Barack Obama, who is by and large, you, you know, although with some serious, you know, exceptions, respected our system, um, and again, the, the, you know, we conservatives have issues with the executive orders and things and, and all the, the, the regulation coming from the executive branch and all of this. But he has not simply disregarded our system. Okay, Vladimir Putin, there's no system like that for Vladimir Putin. Well, this is, a guy, this is a guy who, who, as part of his uh, leadership in Russia, has people killed. Well, absolutely. He he oppresses. He locks up the media. If you're, you know, if you're a, a, a if you're a, an artist and you oppose him, he'll throw you in prison. So you will. So you're willing to say that perspective is absolutely. It's incorrect. Absolutely correct. Um, we're going to go to questions here at at, at some point in the next uh, a couple of minutes. I want to go from foreign policy, national security, to domestic issues. Right. Because your experience as a CIA officer, you spent time overseas. You have real-world experience on some of the issues overseas. Peace. I have less clarity on what you know or what you think about many of the issues that the next president or any president will have to deal with. So I want to go through some very quick issues and just have us give, give us your thumbnail perspective on those issues. On abortion, you are pro-life or pro-choice. Well, before we lead into that, let me just say that if, I, I just served as the chief policy director for the House Republicans, where I where I was over all foreign and domestic policy. Right. So, so, so I'm happy to talk about and any you have domestic some policy. Yeah, uh, you want to talk abor about. abortion? You're pro-life or pro-choice? I'm pro-life. Right. Same same-sex marriage? You're for or against? Uh, well, by my religious faith, uh, I believe in traditional marriage. Um, I also believe that not everyone is going to agree with me on that, and. Uh, and, and I don't believe that, we, uh, that we're always going to be able to uh, dictate to people how they live their lives uh, by law. I do support traditional marriage. I think uh, traditional marriage is, um, has advantages for our, for our society. Yep. Um, but I, I am uncomfortable with the idea that we would uh, dictate by law to, uh, to people on that. Okay. Uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the trade deal that has been such a hot potato in this campaign, opposed by both Mr. Trump and Mr. Clinton, supported by the president, supported by Governor Kasich, who was here on Friday night, so it's not just a partisan issue, for or against? I am for trade in general. I, I, I want TPP to, to, uh, to be signed into, into, into law. 
I, I want that to happen. I do understand their concerns with it. Um, I do understand that people have, uh, there, there has been downward pressure on wages that has come from other sources as well. Yeah. Um, so we need to think about trade, but, but we need to trade in this country. We need to do it in a way that's beneficial to us. Yep. But 95% of the world's consumers are outside of our borders. Our, our companies need to be able to sell their products and services to them. If not, we'll never get the kind of GDP growth, the kind of economic growth we need for there to be economic, for there to be job opportunities for Americans at all economic levels. We just will never get there. For the last 10 years, we've been growing annually at real GDP growth terms at under 2%. We're never going to get the kind of job opportunities for students and for people of all ages unless we're at least at 3%. And we're, I, I believe it's, it's going to be hard for us to get there if we're not trading. And other countries put up these big tariff barriers right. so that we, our, our companies can't sell their products and services. And at least one candidate is talking about big, big tariffs as part of his campaign. Yeah, well. here in the United States. Here in the United right. States. I, I, I believe that, well, Gary Johnson, I imagine, is pro-trade. But you know, neither of the two mar uh, major party candidates are, support trade, and, and certainly not TPP. Or support TPP specifically. Yeah. Um, you mentioned uh, needing to secure the border. Are you for some form of comprehensive immigration reform? I am. Are you for a path to citizenship or just legal status? I believe that people who are obeying our laws and who are here illegally, uh, it's, some, some people come seasonally. Uh, I was raised in Washington State where we grow apples and, and berries and people come seasonally. A lot of those people are illegal. I think those people can be put on, they can, there should be some sort of guest worker program that actually works. Yep. Uh, for those who are here sort of more permanently and th they're obeying our laws, um, I, I believe that there should be a path towards legal, a legal presence here. Uh, as far as citizenship is concerned, um, I, I believe that's a little bit different. I think people should have to get in the regular process or the regular line for that. Um, I do think that that can be made more efficient and we can think about how But that you're works. not talking about deporting everybody in the country who is here. No, I just don't think, I don't, I don't think that's a good idea for our families here in the right. United States and I don't think that's a good idea for our economy. If you became president uh, in January of, of next year, would you move to repeal the Affordable Care Act? I would move to, uh, to replace the Affordable Care Act with a better system that doesn't leave uh, deductibles so high and premiums rising so quickly for so many Americans. We can do better than this. Uh, the Affordable Care Act did, uh, didn't address, for example, the cost of health care. Uh, we just need to do better. I mean, I, I know people who are you know, small business owners, you know, artists, for example, who are, are on their own doing their, their work. They don't work for anybody. They work for themselves. And, and they, they, uh, they depend on Obamacare for, for their health care. And they essentially can't use it because the deductibles are so high. The premiums, they're, so they're paying a lot. They're paying so much in premiums, way more than they ever have before. And their deductibles are so high that they can't use it. So the fact that the uninsured rate in this country has dropped significantly in the last uh, six years since the law was signed in March six years ago. You're, you're, you don't believe there's been a positive impact of that, whatever negative impact well, there I'm may not, be? Well, I'm not saying we should go back to a time when we had so many people who were uninsured. Certainly we don't want that, but I just think we can do better. We've got to be able to do better. And, you know, you know we need to ensure, for example, that people with pre-existing conditions and other people who have complex medical situations and yep. are vulnerable as a result, we need to make sure that they have, that they have insurance. But I think we can do that. You know, I, I favor a system that empowers the, 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 the person, empowers you, know, you and me. Uh, if, if, we, if we don't have health care through our employers, I'd like to see a refundable tax credit, an advanceable refundable tax credit 
that allows people to go out and buy insurance on the open market and, uh, and allows them to, to shop from state to state. You know, we need to reform the way insurance works. Right now, you, you can only buy from within your state. I think that decreases competition. So there are, I think we need to expand access to HSAs uh, in terms of not only access to them, but how much money you can put into them, and then also what you can use them for. Right now, they're only really able to be used for fee for services, um, but I think you ought to be able to use them to buy So you'll have, you'll have a plan that would go in in place? Yeah, I think we need to replace Obamacare with something that is going to lower the cost of right. health care. Accomplishes your goals. And improves access to affordable, quality health care. Good. Let's take some questions for the balance of our time. Please. Thank you. Uh, do you thanks for coming out today. Do you accept the uh, scientific consensus on human-caused climate change, and what will you do about that threat? Right, an, ex an excellent question. Do you believe in climate science? I, I do believe the climate is changing, and I, I do believe that uh, we are contributing to that. I do believe that we have a, a responsibility of stewardship for the earth that we depend on for life. Yeah. And uh, What are you, you prepared to do about it? I think we need to invest more in clean technologies. Uh, I don't think we do enough of that, but the, the, I don't support making investments. I don't support the government investing in specific companies. I think that is, leaves, there's too much potential there for corruption. But I do believe that the government should invest in, in universities uh, doing research and in other research institutions. Uh, to uh, develop better technologies in this space. Do you believe Governor Kasich was here Friday night, and I believe in Ohio, his last budget, he put a tax on hydraulic fracturing. Do you believe that state governments should, uh, you know, generate uh, uh, revenues or impose penalties or something uh, on the order of trying to combat uh, climate change that way? Uh, I'm less excited about... about government regulation, about the answer being government regulation in this space. I, I really think that like, we're a country of uh, tremendous innovation capacity. Uh, we need to leverage that to create technologies that are efficient and effective in lowering our carbon emissions without right. destroying enterprise. Right. Ma'am. Hey, I'm, um, I'm a history professor here in Austin. I've also been a lifelong Republican. And this will be the first time in my life that I won't be able to vote for the Republican candidate. Um, Me too. I'm actually your voter. Okay. So, and you're not bald. And I'm not bald. <laughs> I'm not bald. Good. But I'm also part of the 1% in that I come from a military family. My son is in the Army. Yeah. I, there is no way in hell I can vote for Hillary Clinton. So that's what Evan is for me. I think that many of the people on the panels have underestimated, however, the antipathy that Clinton inspires in the Republican base. Far outside of racism, I, am, I, just, I don't think they understand the suburban Republican voter. So many And you're of saying them, this, you don't understand the suburban Republican voter who's voting for Trump. I, I understand them. I don't think many of the people on your previous panel understand them. They will see it as a binary choice. And they will vote for Trump, in many cases, to stop Hillary. Mm -hmm. So my question is, if we're going to go with the horrible scenario in which, I mean, both of them are horrible for me. I'm just going to get drunk on election day. <laughs> but if Donald Trump becomes the president, have you, you've worked intimately with people in Congress. I would assume that he would also then carry the Senate and the Congress if he himself takes the presidency. Yeah. One by one, I've watched people that I've admired capitulate. 
And so I have no, what, what is the check on him? Yeah, so, so obviously that's one, I think that's probably a question in both cases. You know, if, if she wins or if he wins, the role that Congress plays for the people who oppose them, the role that Congress plays is elevated, right? In being a, a stop or a, a check on their... It should be, and, and this is such an excellent question. Okay, this is, this is how I see this. If Hillary Clinton is elected president, I believe that the Republicans in Congress, we may lose the Senate because of Donald Trump's terrible candidacy. As, and I say we as conservatives, Republicans. Um, not here to advocate for Republicans in this season, certainly. But, uh, but I will say that we, we may lose the Senate, okay? On the House side, we're more likely, we conservatives, Republicans, are more likely to hold on to the House. Yes. Okay? Paul Ryan sees his goal in life right now to protect the conservative, the Republican majority in the House to be the, to, to be the check on either Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump. If Hillary Clinton is elected, my point is just that either a Senate or at least the House will definitely stand up to her. I believe that Hillary Clinton more or less respects our system of government, checks and balances. She, yes, she believes in a huge federal government. She probably, she also, we know, believes in a powerful executive branch, which is inconsistent with our Constitution. But still, the normal now, she believes in that normal, right? It's, it's sort of the next, the next, the third term of President Obama in one way or another, broadly speaking, okay? That's what'll happen. Congress, the, you know, the Republicans in Congress don't like Hillary Clinton, they'll fight Hillary Clinton. If Donald Trump is elected, this is what I think will happen. If Donald Trump was, is elected, he will have uh, a strong support base within the House Republicans. Um, he will have support in the Senate among Republicans as well, um, but he'll probably have a Democrat-controlled uh, Senate. Well, but let me stop you. Why, how, how does Donald Trump win, but the Democrats win the Senate? Politically, that just seems like, like an unlikely outcome. Well, that's that's probably that's probably true. That's probably true. But I'm I'm you know I'm saying at the very least that the House stays Republican. I think in yeah. either way. Sure. But but either way, the bigger point is this: over the last several decades, Congress has essentially given away most of its power. Uh, there was the Administrative Procedures Act decades ago, which basically empowered the executive branch to take over more responsibility over uh, writing rules and regulations, which meant that the laws came, coming from Congress were more broad and vague, and then the executive branch implemented them with tons of rules and regulations that got very much into the detail and had the force of law. Okay, so that happened. Then there were some Supreme Court decisions that were made that also em further empowered the executive branch in this regard. So much of the Article I authority that comes from Article I of the Constitution has been transferred to the executive branch unconstitutionally, therefore gutting Congress's power. That's not where it ends, though. Congress ultimately has the power of the purse. It's Congress's most important power. That means what? Control over the government's budget, okay, and funding of the government's activities. So that's all fine and dandy. If you take that to an extreme, the, the Congress can shut down the government if it has a real fight with the executive branch. I'm not in favor of shutting down the government, but it should, Congress should have that power. The reality is, though, that the executive branch has gotten so large now, and so many people depend on it, either they're employed by it, or they, they depend on it for some other reason. So many people depend on the, on the executive branch and the federal government that it is now politically untenable for the Republican Party to leverage the power of the purse the way they could otherwise. So when I was with the Republicans in, in the House as the policy director there, 
you know, we, we would look at the polling numbers and even Republicans didn't want us to really fight on really critical issues to the point of potentially shutting down the government because of, the, of this dynamic. So it's politically untenable. So what I'm telling you is that Congress does not have the power, will not have the power to check a President, uh, a president Trump. So for those people who say it doesn't make a difference who wins the presidency because Congress will take care of us, you're skeptical of that. Congress does not, Congress barely has any power left and the members of Congress will not stand up for their own power because it makes it more difficult for them to be reelected. So this is what I'm telling you, Congress and also the power of the courts, the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court's power ultimately only comes from the respect that the other two branches, especially the executive branch, give it. And if you have an authoritarian as the President of the United States and a President Trump who has already demonstrated clear disrespect for the courts, a total lack of knowledge and understanding of our, of our Constitution, and who has never had a check on anything in his life, you cannot count, I'm here to tell you, I'm sad to say this, you cannot count on Congress to check a President Trump. They will not be able to do it. And if, they, if members of Congress didn't have the backbone and the principle to stand up to, uh, to a, a man like Donald Trump in the primaries and then in this general election, how on earth will they have the power to do it or the will to do it when he controls the most powerful executive branch in the world? How will they do it? They will not. We have time for one more question. Sir. Um, I have a quick question. I know there are a lot of um, or conservatives who've uh, voted Republican for their entire lives and have felt that this election they can't vote for either Hillary or Donald Trump, um, but feel like Gary Johnson is the most viable third party option right. because he talks about liberty and states' rights and um, constitutional values like you've spoken of. Yeah. So what would be your sales pitch to those voters? I think that's an absolutely great question. It's a great last question. So there is a place you can park your protest vote, and that's Gary Johnson. Why you and not him? And what pitch would you make to those people? That's great. Yes, thank you for that. Look, I, I, I hope that this becomes an easy decision for Americans who learn about me. Gary Johnson has said that he doesn't think it's our problem to, de to defeat ISIS. I fundamentally disagree with this. ISIS is, a, is, is, is an evil force in the world that is wreaking havoc on, on so many lives, millions of lives, and threatening us here at home. They, these people, I know them. I've been there with them. I've looked them in the eye, not in a controlled prison environment, but on the, in the dark alleys of the Middle East and South Asia. These people eat, drink, and sleep destroying us. They must be defeated. And he doesn't believe that's our problem. He is terribly mistaken. He also believes that, uh, well, and he didn't even know where Aleppo was. Aleppo is one of the most critical cities in the world's largest humanitarian disaster since World War II and in the, and in the fight against ISIS and he has no idea where it is. Um, he said the other day that we don't need to worry about climate change because the sun's gonna burn us up anyway, or that's probably a mischaracterization. But this is, this is somebody who considers himself a libertarian but who doesn't understand religious liberty. Um, I, I just, in sum, I believe that he is unfit for the presidency. And I believe that he reveals that reality to America every week. I do believe that he's a nice man. And I, I don't mean that I don't mean that in any other way than I, I do think that's, that's true, and I believe his running mate also is, is, a, is a, a, an American statesman. But that's not enough. 
But I do not believe that in this time in our history, that is enough. We're going to stop there. We have a taping of the PBS program Overheard, which I'm so happy to host at 2 o'clock today uh, with uh, Mr. McMullen. If you'd like to come up and, and hear more from him and have an opportunity to ask some questions you didn't get to ask today, please join me in thanking Evan McMullen Thank for you. making the time to be here with us today. Thank you. We have now concluded the 2016 Texas Tribune Festival. I hope we'll see you again next year. Thank you so much.